Welcome to the Disney Desk, everyone. I'm Sydney, just popping in to introduce today's episode. What you're about to hear was originally published as a special Patreon-exclusive episode. I'm sure that some of you are curious as to what happens over at patreon.com slash disneydesk, so here's a brief rundown. Our Disney Desk Friends tier is just $3 a month, where you'd get to vote every month on a topic you'd like to hear us cover on the show, and enjoy bonus clips every week from us, your Disney Desk hosts. Our $7 tier is called A Little More Magic, and it includes the same perks as the Disney Desk Friends, in addition to two full-length bonus episodes, such as the one you're about to hear, every month, as well as exclusive access to hang out with us during special live-streamed events. And finally, our most magical patrons pay $12 a month and receive all of the aforementioned perks, as well as a very special shout-out from Carter and Sydney at the end of every episode. Thank you to all of our existing patrons who make content like this possible. We are very proud of this special episode and hope you'll consider subscribing to hear more magical episodes like it. So without further ado, please enjoy this Patreon-exclusive episode. I have often dreamed of a place and time where a lot of people would be giving us their dime, where the fans would cheer when we do our bits, and they buy some of the stuff we advertise, and they see why we liked it. We'll be there someday. We can be monetized, we will find our way, with hard work and if we strategize, I know every show could be worth much more. I could go most anywhere to start a Patreon. Okay. <laughs> it might. Hey, you know what? Give me credit. Only one of those wasn't a rhyme. The rhyming was the least of your problems here, sir. Oh. Um, on this episode of Disney Desk American Idol, <laughs> Sydney shoots me with a gun. <laughs> um. Okay. Listen, I appreciate you reminding people to give us money. Even though the people listening to this episode have already given us their money. So maybe I don't appreciate that because this is falling on deaf ears. But, um... Buns. Should have been <laughs> in on the pincers and the frog one, shouldn't I have? Yeah. But, but you're Damn. right. It was a great message. Um, little pitchy, you know. It's... <laughs> this was ambitious. I'll say that. I, of course I'm pitchy. I don't... I'm a choir voice. If you give me the notes but you, and everyone's together, I can round up the sound. I can project. I boom. Yeah, I, but I have power in my soul. But. If I had to listen to it, 
then you have to hear about it. <laughs> I know. Okay. I should start giving. Well, I should start rating these out of. Oh God, that'll be a fun Patreon <laughs> bit to do someday. Ranking your favorite bits. Yeah. You have to go through every episode again and evaluate like what was the best and what was the worst. Right. Right. I'm sure there are some favorites. Welcome to the Disney <laughs> desk, ladies and gentlemen. I am Carter. And I'm Sydney. And this is Patreon. This always feels Woo. like a party. Does yeah, can, can we get you something? Can we get you yeah, water you with some ice cubes? Yeah. A lemon, maybe? Yeah. I <laughs> I don't know why I was thinking about that today, but you know what the funniest bit in SpongeBob history is? <laughs> what? The April Fool's episode. He, uh, some guy at the Krusty Krab is like, can I get a glass of water? And SpongeBob's like, sure. And then he starts giggling. And the guy gets so angry because he's like, what did you do to my drink? And he's like, you asked for a couple of ice cubes and I only gave you one. And the guy just is like, huh, that is pretty funny. And I just love that this guy was going to beat the crap out of SpongeBob because he's like, what is this little gremlin? Am, am I, did he spike my drink? Am I, am I like, did he poison me? Do I need to throw up? Oh my gosh. We need to talk about SpongeBob one day. Yeah, that, that, like... Where half of we'll it's just us being month. like, this is my favorite quote from Sundrop, this is my favorite moment, this is Wait my favorite minute. episode. This is my, <laughs> this, this is my favorite one-off, yeah. like, supporting character. Yes. Someday. Well, someday. We, can we should make that, we, we should make that a Patreon goal. If we get ten patrons, we'll do a We SpongeBob. will tackle Spongebob, yeah. We'll do Spongebob month. It'll be all Spongebob for an entire month. Oh my gosh, you're right. That Sometime is a in, good like, idea. Sometime in, like, July. That. It'll be our uh, summer with the sponge month. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you're absolutely correct. Okay, I'm gonna make a note about I that love, later. I love that we're starting this episode with so much shtick when I'm actually really excited for the topic at hand. Right. I think that's the beauty of the Patreon that it feels more like a club than it is like our formal right. podcast. So we can just kind of like shoot the shit a little bit. Right. But, where I'm like, oh, this can be two hours. I don't care. Yeah. Whatever. You, whatever. you guys don't have anywhere I'll to be. be I'll right? get a little loosey goosey with the editing. Yeah, that's fine. But anyway, we are talking about something very exciting um, that Carter and I have been privately talking about for, like, years. And that's not yes. an exaggeration. <laughs> Literal years. That this, this has been in the works. Anytime we've talked about doing a podcast or restarting a podcast, there's always been this as, like, well, obviously we're doing this one. Like, any yeah. list we have of topic ideas or, like, deep dive critical analyses... Like, this is usually in the top three. Yeah, this is a close second behind Princess and the Frog. And, yes. well, you know, we've already done that, so it's time. Ladies and gentlemen, today we are doing a deep critical dive of Hercules. Ooh. Yes, it is time to talk about Hercules. What year did Hercules come out? Nine... Hercules is... 1997 film, the wow. 35th Disney animated feature film, directed by John Musker and Ron Clemens. I have the Wikipedia page open this time, so I don't mix up their names. Right, right, right. Um, based off the mythology of Heracles, the Greek hero, uh, a demigod, half-god of Zeus's, who is famous for a lot of different things, but mostly for being very strong. Right, right. You, you know, you kind of walked me into one of my first talking points that I have about this mm -hmm. as I was re-watching for this episode. I really had to, like, ask myself, like, what makes this um, myth in particular, this story, right for Disney? What, mm -hmm. what makes this kind of story attractive to 
Disney filmmakers? Why does this, like, of all of the fairy tales or myths or stories that could be created, why this guy? Why this? Why this? And honestly, the answer I came to had really nothing to do with the guy at all, Um, but more so to do about the, like, the uh, imagery and culture around ancient Greece and Greek mythos, which is like, I'm like, oh yeah, like Greek mythos is its own world building kit. Like Greek, Greek, everything has it like its own architecture, its own color palettes, its own fashion. Um, You can pad out a world perfectly the way that Disney likes to do where you see that they have really thought about every, every little tiny Mm -hmm. detail um, it already comes complete with its own ex- accessories, if you will. And right. so any story could have been told. This could very well have been another princess. Well, I actually have some interesting notes on that front for when we get into the history section. But uh-huh. I love this take. You are coming out with a fastball <laughs> right down the plate to start. Because exactly, like, I would say we're in sort of a Greek mythology renaissance right now. Yeah. But we never left. There is always something Greek mythology playing whether it's Hercules, the live-action show with um, Hercules, the Legendary Adventures. Oh, okay. Um, that was a sp- and then spun off with Xena. Um, that was, like, around the same time as this. And then in the 2000s, we had Percy Jackson and the God of War series. And then in this decade, these last two decades, we've had, like, Lore Olympus and Hades, um, which is my personal mm-hmm. favorite version of these myths. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because we were talking about, for the Disney 100, how all of, like, Disney's versions you know, Disney Snow White, Disney Cinderella, they work so well with fairy tales because it's like, well, we have an incredible team of artists who can put their own spin on a story. This isn't Grimm's fairy tales anymore. This is Disney's version of a Grimm fairy tale. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you're right. Greek mythology is a universe. It is like thousands of years of like stories and characters and tragedies and comedies and triumphs and victories and heroic stories. And Ultimately, they ended up on Hercules, but you're right. It could have been just a Trojan War story. It could have been about the Odyssey. It could have been about, it could have been about Arachne. It could have been about, you know, it could have been about Jason and the Argonauts, who are referenced in this movie. It could have been um, a brand new character that has not existed yet. <laughs> right. It is kind of the reverse of what happened with Moana, which is interesting because they're both Musker and Clemens joints. Mm-hmm. It is the, yeah, it is like. You know, Greek mythology was something Disney was looking to work in, and then they circled in on Hercules because they're like, oh, this is an interesting chap to build a narrative off of. Right. Whereas with, like, Polynesian mythology and uh, Moana, they started with, oh, it'd be interesting to do something with this Maui guy. He seems to be, like, a cool Mm. adventuring dude. And then they're like, that's how they stumble upon, like, oh, there was, like, a thousand-year period where they just stopped traveling. And then the story, like, blew up out of that. It's interesting the different funnel effects both of these films have. So I know you've done quite a bit of homework on the history. Um, would you like to segue us in? Yes. Uh, hey, everybody, it's Carter's History Corner. Ooh. I'll think of a C word for history, not that C word. Um, Carter's History Corral. Um, yes, but so for me... And, like, I guess before we get into the history of the film, do you want to talk about your history with the movie? 
Oh, sure. Um, you know what's so weird? Like, I forget that we were too young to watch anything when these movies come out. Isn't that the damnedest thing? <laughs> I always think about that where I'm like, yeah, I lived with this my entire life. And it's like, it, there are oh, kids wasn't. who experienced this before you. Yeah, like, I feel that Lion King was 94. I forget about that. We were three when this came out. I always forget that Toy Story is like that, too. I feel like I've... Right. Like, I was not sentient. <laughs> Um, when Toy Story was, was, came to be, and yet I feel, I don't remember a time before it. I don't, like, I've sort of, I, I feel like that's I have what, always known it, you know? So, yeah, like, I, I identify with Toy Story and Hercules and Aladdin and all of these. And when you were like, oh, 1997, I was like, I was exactly a year old. <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, I was born in 95, so I was like three yeah. Oh, I forgot. Right, I did transitional first. That's why we're. Oh, I was like, how am I that much older than you? And I'm like, oh, right, because I had like the side year. So then. Because you were in August, Nick, so Callum, you like Kevin. Yeah, I was in like the middle tier, and my mom decided to hold me back instead of moving oh, me forward, where I would have been like noticeably younger than everyone else. Oh, I see. So that's how we're like in the same grade, but you're like a full year and then some yeah. ahead of me. Yeah. yeah. I almost, yeah, I'm always like almost always a full year ahead of you yeah. until your birth. Yeah. Especially because our birthdays aren't actually that far apart. No, you're my, we're there exactly six months apart. Yeah. Yeah. So we have a big chunk of time where uh, I'm like noticeably older than you. Yeah. But um, yeah, I was going to say what, like. But I've always loved that this has always been a favorite. Um mm-hmm. Certainly, this was in the plastic canon of VHS tapes. Can you, like, still see, like, I'm, you know, I don't, I haven't lived in the house that I, like, was born in 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 over, like, 15 years, but I can still perfectly see the cabinet that, like, all of our tapes were in, and I can still hear, like, the sound of it, like, opening. Somebody needs to make, like like retro ASMR and by retro I just mean like nostalgic like 90s ASMR with things like opening a VHS case well no what they're gonna do is someone's gonna make a VR headset that lets you go back into your memories and society's gonna collapse because we'll all be caught in our nostalgia I would stay there yeah um yeah I'm not leaving <laughs> right my parents are still together in this reality I'm not leaving Jesus Christ, <laughs> I had to go there I had to um, I know I know anyway um, um, yes, but I have the same thing, because, like, in, because I literally can look over, because, like, I'm at home right now, I can look over and see where we'd had the big tubs with all those white plastic shells. Yeah, right, um, and so, like, that's kind of a lot of my memories with this film, um, I've always loved the music in this, it's hard mm-hmm. to say anything very intelligent about something that, like you said, has just been so synonymous with my identity and my childhood and my life that like I um it's it's different than how we talk about turning red or any of these other modern films where it's like oh I decided to go see it it was like no this has just always been a staple in my life I went to the cinema place and ate some popping corn and yes I sat in my yes no you're completely right so but this isn't anything like that I would sit like lay on my stomach on the living room floor like this and watch it from a TV and I like knew all the words not just the all the words to the song but like all the words to the movie because I'd seen it that many times that's interesting see my memory with this era of Disney and I wanted to talk about this era because it really is like all of us 
Like, I feel like our generation in particular is very protective of this specific era. Yeah. The post-Lion King, the downslide of the Renaissance, like, well, I guess we can include Pocahontas in there, but that one's with, like, a lot of caveats. Mm-hmm. Um, Hunchback, Hercules, Mulan, Tarzan. Like, that bunch of... That's is ours. Like, yeah, it feels like I watched those more than any of the others because those were the most current. And also, like, I feel like our generation defends those, like... You know, they're a little... They don't have the best luster. They're considered imperfect. Right. But, like, we defend them. And they're the kind of films I love talking about because I'm like, what the hell can I say about Beauty and the Beast that hasn't already been said right. 72 bajillion times? Like, I like talking about these films because there's stuff to discuss. There's ways to reappraise them. Mm. And it's funny, I don't have as many strong memories about any individual movie. I just remember specific moments. Because we very much were like, a, oh, something was always on, on the TV kind of family. Um... You know, usually my sister would take over, so it was a lot of Mary Kay and Ashley. But, like, <laughs> when it was Disney stuff, I remember almost every movie, I have, like, five or six very distinct images. And for me, it's the whole Zero to Hero montage. And it's, like, right leading up to the Hydra. Like, all of that stuff. So mm. when he's fighting the uh, centaur, and, like, particularly, I really remember the bit where Pain and Panic realized they screwed up, like, uh, Hades has realized they screwed up and they go, oh my god! I just remember that graphic shot <laughs> really, really clearly. Yeah. I remember feeling where, like, when I got to be, like, slightly older, like, elementary elementary age around, like, um, feeling like Megara was the coolest girl I'd ever seen, but I was also right. a fan of in, I was too young to be probably engaging with the show, but Daria... Why did the nineties like like understated moody girls? <laughs> uh, because that's what guys thought feminism was. Oh yeah, yeah, you're probably right. Like if feminism is not girl boss in the nineties, it was like, oh I don't care about anything. I see through your veneer. Yeah. It's so funny you mentioned Daria because I do want to talk about the Hercules animated show at some point during this time, yeah. and that will come up. That would oh. be a little pin for the audience. Okay. Um, we need to, speaking yeah. of, we should have like a Mike, we need to have like a Mike Judge episode. I won't survive that episode. Yeah. I will dehydrate, I will talk so much <laughs> I dehydrate and expire and you will be held accountable. <laughs> It'll be like, well, she didn't kill well, him, but she like, but she was complicit. Yeah. <laughs> she egged it on. So like that kind of counts, right? Yeah. All right. Lock her up, boys. Um, yes. But, so, it's so tough talking about the history of this and Princess and the Frog, and when we inevitably do a Moana episode, because I am really into Musker and Clemens as creators. So, you're familiar with, like, you understand the ideas about turret theory, right? Like, basically, it's, like, this idea that really became prominent in the 70s with live-action film of, like, the director is not just the lead. Like, traditionally, the producer was the driver of an artistic vision of a film, and the director was, like, the head actor. His yeah. job was to make sure the actors did what they were supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but as time went on, and because the director is the one who's on set every day, they would shape more and more of the production, and then that became auteur theory. And it was this idea of, like, the director is the sole visionary mind of a production. It is their idea. It's, like, their creative soul that drives a production. And, like... Like, that's how we get, like, Spielbergs and Kubricks and Scorsese's of, like, oh, we can chart this person's films and see their personality. We can see what their passions and ideas are. Animation really doesn't have that as much because 
it's just too collaborative. There are just too many people, and especially the traditional Disney way of animating things where, like, people would be signed to certain characters or certain environments where it's like, well, Jafar is one person's idea. Yeah. You know, obviously the director would, like, influence that, but, like, at the end of the day, that animator's drawing their vision of what an evil sultan looks like. Right. And Musker and Clemens are the rare, like, they're sort of, like, a rare creation for Disney because, like, they are a creative pair who basically stay together for their entire career. Like, when you go through the Disney Renaissance, they are the only pair that really stays together. Because Rescues Down Under is Hendel, Boytoy, and Mike Gabriel. They don't really work together again. Beauty and the Beast, uh, Gary, Trousdale, and Kirk Wise, they end up working together on Hunchback and mm. Atlantis, and then they're just done. They retire. Right. Um, Roger Allers and Rob Minkoff for Lion King, they literally do not do anything together again. Um, you go through Disney's history, and Musker and Clemens are really the only creative team that stays together to last multiple decades together. You know, they do basically the core of the 90s films, and, you know, they do Treasure Planet, they do Princess and the Frog, and then they do Mama. They stay together for multiple decades. And what strikes me is, like, they are as close to auteurs as Disney can have, but they're also auteurs because the real auteur of the Disney Renaissance is Howard Ashman, Robert Mencken. So, like, for me, this film became an interesting study because this is the first time Musker and Clemens really have to step out of Ashman's shadow. Mm. At this point, Howard Ashman was gone, and they it's like, okay, what do we do in a world where we don't have Howard Ashman? Um, so... To quickly go through the history, Musker and Clemens both served under Frank Thomas, who's one of, like, the OG Disney animators. Like, they are very much of that generation where it's like, oh, we're passing the torch and immediately setting the house on fire. Right. Because uh, there's that, like, Cal Arts class with, like, them, John Lasseter, Tim Burton, Brad Bird, who famously got fired from Disney because he was too much of a like, asshole to everyone. And he's like, this sucks. We need to do better. And they're all like, what are you talking about? Right. You're, like, 12. Get out of here. <laughs> um... They work together on Fox and the Hound and work on Black Cauldron. This is, like, the doomsday era, where, like, basically, the animation department is constantly, like, oh, uh, are you going to survive? Mm -hmm. There's a very real reality where Black Cauldron was Treasure Planet, where it's, like, shut it down, we're done, pull the plug, no more. Right. No moss. This sucks. Um, fortunately for them, Roy Miller, who was the CEO before Eisner, greenlit uh, Clemens's idea to do Great Mouse Detective before he got canned and replaced by Eisner. Uh, fun fact about Miller, he was an NFL wide receiver. What? Um, and, <laughs> yes. Uh, Disney was run by a football guy who was also the son-in-law of Walt Disney. Uh, his only notable contribution to, well, his notable contribution for Disney was Greenlighting Great Mass Detective, which probably saved the animation department. And his football moment was getting uh, clotheslined by Dick the Night Train Lane and being unconscious on the field for multiple minutes. Oh, um, God. What team did he that, play for? The Rams. Oh, that's ironic. Back, well, I was going to say when they were in Los Angeles. I forgot they went back to Los Angeles. Right. But I digress. So, basically, Eisner and Kensenberg really were preparing to just pull the plug. Because Eisner's whole pitch was, we have so many animated films that we can just re-release in perpetuity. It could kind of keep the entire company solvent for who knows how long when you combine that. You know, it'll, keep, it'll help get people to the parks. It'll keep the merchandise in. Like, do we mm. need to do animated movies? Right. And Katzenberg, and to underline how, like, bean country these two were, Katzenberg w apparently said, and I quote, look, we have 175 people and we are paying them every day to come into work. We are going to pay them whether or not they make a movie. So I guess we ought to have them make the movie. 
Literally, Great Mouse Detective survived because it would have been too expensive to just tell them all to go home. Right. They cut the budget in half. Uh, Musker Clemens team up with um, uh, Madison, who we discussed last week, the Disney animator who was there till the very end, who recently passed away. It was like one. Of, it was like the early Pixar films. It was like everyone's working on this. Uh, whether or not our company exists in a month is dependent on us not fucking this up. So right. everyone's in. Like everyone's in every meeting all of the time. You're not seeing your families. You're just gonna have to live with that. Right. And sort of. Sort of all of this leads up to sort of the emotional core of Musker and Clemens. Uh, Katzenberg and Eisner, to kind of like boost morale, started doing this thing called a gong show, where they would invite everyone from the company to come into a little pitch room and pitch their ideas for movies. They were like, anyone, if you're a janitor and you got an idea for a picture, come in, we'll make you a star. Oh, God. And uh, Clemens comes in and pitches two ideas. Um, an adaptation of Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid, sort of go back to the traditional, like, hey, let's do a princess movie, uh, maybe it could be a musical, question mark? And what he described as treasure planet in space. And uh, Katzenberg's like, uh, no, that treasure planet idea seems a little complicated. Plus, it's kind of Star Trekky. I don't know if we want that. And eventually he's like, ah, Little Mermaid, give it a try. Mm-hmm. Uh, Musker, and this is the start of their creative pairing, because Musker's like, oh, I really like that treasure planet idea. So the entire time they're working on Little Mermaid, they're like tinkering away at this idea of like, well, what would that actually look like? What would treasure planet in space actually be? And at the same time, they bring, Disney brings in another creative pair, um, Mankin and Ashman, who met in New York while working sort of in the independent theater scene, and they kind of blew up with Little Shop of Horrors, which was their first production together. It won a Grammy, it uh, killed, it won the um, Drama Desk Award. It, one of the really all-time great, like, first pitch down the middle is a 100-mile-per-hour fastball. Mm. And... Katzenberg brings Ashman in for various projects, and he's like, I'm bringing my creative partner. Uh, I love the email that, or the letter he sent, because it really does sum it up all really well, how Howard Ashman kind of became the heart of the company. Uh, Dear Howard, I'm glad we had the chance to get together. This prospect that you and Disney will be able to co-conspire on some projects is exciting to us all. The combination of Howard Ashman's talent and the Walt Disney name is a home run waiting to happen. With best regards, Jeffrey Katzenberg. And... That's kind of an understatement for how well it went. Right. Um, like, you know, he came in and basically helped shape Little Mermaid. Like, you know, Ash, you know, uh, Musker and Clemens are pretty candid about, like, he taught us basically how to do a musical, like how songs tell a story. Right. Apparently he came in day one and was like, what if we made the Crab Jamaican? And he already had, like, all these songs done based on reading the script. He's like, all right, there needs to be a song here. Let's just say it's called Party of the World. It might be, you know, it doesn't have to be called that, but let's just say, do, 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 and just had the song done. Mm-hmm. Um, and Little Mermaid becomes the first animated film to break $100 million on its initial run. Wow. Um, so Musker and Clemens are like, okay, so we might have just saved Disney animation. Uh, can we do Treasure Planet, please? Um, and Katzenberg is like, I just, I just don't think it's a winning idea. Um, we have a couple other ideas for you. Uh, we have Swan Lake. Uh, we have, which they never ended up doing. Yeah. Uh, we have King of the Jungle, which ended up becoming Lion King. And as all of this is happening, Howard Ashman um, realizes he has AIDS. Um, and I'm not going to go too far into that, but um, I will say I watch a lot of the documentary of Howard Ashman's life. And mm. it is a hell of a thing to know that he was making multiple magnum opuses as he was really in a dark, dark place. Um, They were describing him on the press tour as having a chest catheter in. So, like, they would have an interviewer come in, quickly, like, give him medicine, 
have him operate again. He was supposed to go on, like, all the rides, and he was, like, nauseous the entire time, but he did it because, right. you know, we were still in the shadow of Reagan, and, you know, <sighs> you can't imagine how bad it would have looked if the yeah. new star of Disney has the gay virus. Right. Um, yeah, and for basically the entire time he was at Disney, he really wanted to make Aladdin. He was in love with the story as a kid. He, like, put on a show of it as a kid, and he had been quietly working on it the same time he was working on Little Mermaid. And it was briefly shelved because, you know, Katzenberg was just like, hey, man, this Beauty and the Beast thing, we basically had to throw everything out. Can you fix this? Mm. And he pretty candidly was like, I am too sick. I cannot get to California right now. They bring the entire production to his home in New York. And the part that really gets me that I almost can't describe without getting worked up is they do a test screening of Beauty and the Beast. Like, it's still rough animation. Like, some of it isn't even colored in. Mm -hmm. And it just kills. It blows up. Everyone loves it. And they go to see him at the hospital and pretty immediately realize, like, oh, this is, like, the last time we will ever get to speak to him. Mm-hmm. And someone goes, Beating the Beast, can you believe it? And he just goes, I did. <clears throat> it becomes the first animated film to get nominated for Best Picture. And that is sort of Howard Ashman's greatest success. Oh. So with... Aladdin being kind of one of the last things he worked on, they're like, yeah, um, would you guys like to do Aladdin? And I have to imagine, you know, Musker and Clemens won as, like, a respect to Howard Ashman, and also because, like, it let them play in a lot of the space they liked. Um, And this is where I think they kind of come together, all four of them come together really well, because, like, you know, Mencken talks about, like, we were so off-put by how, like, white bread and middle America they are. Just these two guys in wine t-shirts with, like, beards and small glasses. Like, you know, they all leaned into this idea of, like, you know, Aladdin being sort of this campy musical with a little, like, gaudy Vegas stuff and showmanship. Mm-hmm. And Aladdin becomes, for the longest time, the most successful animated film of all time. It was the highest grossing film of 1992, which at the time, it was unprecedented for animated films to do that. And it's the first to break half a, million, uh, half a billion dollars. So finally, they're like, okay, can we please, sir, we have done so much for this company. We really, really, really want to do Treasure Planet. And Roy Disney finally intervenes and says, all right, enough is enough. You have jerked these guys around for, like, almost a decade now. Like, they have, you know, they deserve to make their movie. So Katzenberg and them finally come to an agreement that they need to make one more film for the studio, and then Treasure Planet can happen. And I do love their contract stipulated or another film of your choice. I love, Mm -hmm. even at the 11th hour, that fucking (laughs) weasel, Jeffrey Katzenberg, is like, yeah, but if you think of a better idea... (laughs) Please uh, offer it, yeah. Yes. So they were handed a couple different projects. Um, They were offered to do Don Quixote, which was one that was worked on back in, like, back when Walt was alive. That was one that was getting thrown around. There's, like, a lot of cool drawings of that. Um, the Odyssey, which um, was an adaptation of the Odyssey centered around whales, which I'm like, I don't know what that is, but that sounded cool. Uh, around the World in 80 Days, which I'm really shocked they haven't done. And ultimately, after rejecting those, they discover an old Hercules pitch by uh, Joe Hadar. Um, the idea was, the plot was, um, the Trojan War is going on, and both sides are courting the mighty Hercules to join their side and win the battle. And as he marches off, like, oh, this will prove I'm a hero, he's, you know, he gains humility and learns the error of his ways and learns how to be a true hero. Mm -hmm. And that is how the story of Hercules came to be. Basically, yeah, for me, this is the story of, like, 
two guys on a quest to make their passion project, kind of having to learn how to exist. It really is like Howard Ashman was the soul of the company at this point. His death is not dissimilar to when Walt Disney died. Mm. Granted, those souls have different emotional makeups, Mm -hmm. perhaps. Um, But yeah, like this was the first time Musker and Clemens and Mencken were all going to work together without him. And it is really interesting to see what they came up with. Yeah. No, that's a that's a great um, story, but it, I mean, it just goes to show how like you reach so far back to um, to get to this, but but you started exactly where Hercules starts, <laughs> right? Like you need yeah, all of those it's... pieces to to land where they did, and and I feel like so many Disney films, if not all of them, have a similar like take a similar journey before they are realized as as just right. their idea. Yeah, it's, like, it really is, like, Disney has so many projects that just come and go and go through so many different iterations, Mm -hmm. but, like, this one in particular interests me because it is, like, this is the closest we have to an auteur situation with Disney. This is, like, following two guys on their creative journey and seeing how it changes and how it's shaped by the people around them. Right. All right, so what do we want to start with first? Oof, okay, um... An element? <laughs> this is too open-ended. Yeah, I was going to say, I have my notes categorized. Right? That's the hard part about these critical analysis things. It really is like, oh, you just have an ocean. Yeah. You can go in any direction. Maybe you'll find an island. I say, let's start off with the story. Let's okay. start off simple. Like, the core plot and talk about the plot itself. Okay, great. So... I think, like, uh, with all the discussion of Musker and Clemens, their big pitch for this was they really want to do, they don't want to do, like, the traditional sweeping fairy tale musical. They want to do a sort of screwball comedy, like a classic 30s, 40s, 50s kind of film. Mm-hmm. Like a Lady Eve, a Sullivan's Travel, uh, some like it hot. And it really is striking how, like, sort of laid back this entire film is right? compared to, like, you know, this was following Pocahontas and Hunchback of Notre Dame, mm. the most, like, pretentious, po-faced, serious right. movies in the entire Disney canon. And we just glide into... And even Lion King has its goofy moments, but there's some, like, dark stuff in that. Right. And Hercules is, like, so delightful in terms of, like, we start very pretentious. Like, we have Charlton Heston, like, the embodiment of classic Hollywood, right. narrating, like... What is the makeup of a hero? Right. And then immediately he gets undercut by a bunch of vases. Yeah. And, you know, I was going to talk about this maybe sometime later in our discussion, but what has always been a huge appeal to me for this film um, is marrying a Greek mythic epic to gospel music and having that be the vehicle for the story being told by like a third party narrator right it's devious it's yes kind of ingenious really it really is to to have um we we just got done talking about moon girl and having sort of like a comic book outsider narrating um but to have that narration assisted with like vase art (laughs) Mm -hmm. um that is sort of it's almost like have you ever seen prince of egypt yes yeah i don't know why it reminded there because there was like sort of uh like a hieroglyphic sequence in that um 
but I have always thought that that was a hilarious joke, even that for for the whole story to be um, propelled by this gospel truth and um, metaphor. But then why not have them just be gospel singers and the soundtrack is gospel. Have a nice day. (laughs) Right. I mean, yeah, like I said, like I was saying before, this one follows in the footsteps of Aladdin of being like, it's not a culture. It's like a sort of glitzy, glamorized version of a culture. Right. And whereas Aladdin is like, let's do a Vegas, like like a showstopper. Yes. Yeah. Someone was like, oh, God, we're playing with gods? Well, what if we just do gospel? Yeah. And then the whole thing What if we make it kind of religious? Of yeah. <laughs> like, it's literally like, oh, once you put that gear in, every other part of the machine just starts turning. Right. Um, which I think is what gives Hercules probably one of the best soundtracks of the canon for, for that reason, because it couldn't be more random. Like somehow the, um, somehow the like Vegas glitz and glam almost matches a sort of like quasi Arabian theme. Yeah. And yet to, to pair like, gospel music which is like a relatively modern invention um and r&b with ancient greece um that like what what like weird juxtaposition that's there's something very like ambitious about that right it does feel ambitious well it reminds me of it reminds me of hades town where it's like how do we make this old story sing again like this has been told ten thousand times how do we make it sing Mm. it's like well if you want to make it sing you have to like kind of you know, you have to take a risk. You have to try something bold. Right. And to just give it this, like, laid-back groove. Right. One, it just gets you into the mood. Like, I think... Like, people complain about this movie having a tone problem at times, but I'd argue, like, the opening does... One, it does such a good job of covering so much ground. Because we were talking about how, like, Greek mythology is a universe. But it's like, oh, there's a challenge with that? Because it's like, you have to explain a lot of rules. Right. Really, 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 really fast. So I appreciate that, like, we cover... Like, the, him, to getting to, like, him, like, the end of Gospel Truth, that's probably, like, 10, 15 minutes max, right? It, it's not that If long. even, yeah, for for the muses to be like, hey, we're going to be your host tonight. Here's everything. Yes. You need, here's what we yeah. do. And here's what right. you that's need to energy. know. <laughs> and it's also, like, the idea of muses I really like because, one, like, again, they are, like, muses in greek mythology are like arbiters of art they are like divine inspiration Mm -hmm. so of course they would be the ones who know this whole story Mm -hmm. like they would be able to articulate the story better than everyone because they just observe the whole world and inspire the people who need to be inspired right um i also love how devious it is that like they interact with the modern like the world but never are directly seen by any of the other characters that's interesting yeah like, during I Won't Say I'm In Love is where it becomes the most clear because they're, like, turning into different pieces of art right. and then, like, changing back before Megara can see them. Right. And I think that's such a devious play on the concept of muses because the idea of a muse... Like, modern understanding of muses is, like, oh, she's my inspiration to right. strum a guitar. When in reality, it's like, oh, well, they're never seen. They just sneak up and hit you with an idea exactly. and then run away. Yeah, I would argue so I that... so clever. Like, I would argue that the only reason Hercules gains any popularity is because the muses decide to have a montage about it. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. They're like, oh, we are getting people excited about this. We're telling... Yeah. Yeah, we're Let's telling... We're creating rally. these faces. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. 
And it works both, yeah, in that, like, textual way of, like, oh, they're spreading the story of Hercules. Yeah. Don't you mean Huncules? And <laughs> yeah. it works on our level of being, like, yeah, this guy rules. Look right. at this shit. He's fighting a lion? Yeah. Is a lion? What's, why cool. is there a giant pig? Oh, he's got merch? Sign me yeah, up. He's got, <laughs> he's got air herks? Nice. Yeah. There's herc juice. Uh, yeah. Oh, my. Has anyone, because, uh, like, I've seen a couple trailers for that movie that's called Air. It's about, like, oh, Nike. I've seen be, that. Like, betting the farm on Michael Jordan as their, like, sponsor. Has anyone done a parody of that trailer, but instead of saying Michael Jordan, it's like, who's the shoe for? Hercules. Hercules. <laughs> I, I, someone needs to. But, like, I didn't, I've heard the story of how Nike gave him more money than they've given anybody. I didn't think the story was long enough to make a movie out of. Right, I'm like, yeah, he gave him money. I don't know. I, and then like, he I turned out to great to be amazing. So then they made all that money back and then some. So yes, um, but yeah, like I was saying, they. I feel like right away you're <laughs> understanding like, well, one, I you know what I also like about that opening is I really like that again it sets up the idea that this is like a classic Hollywood film because classic Hollywood like I like that it sets up this classic Hollywood film splashed with R&B and gospel mm-hmm. and sort of modernized because like the like sort of modern day intro is always a thing with classic films like even with Disney like the 40s films all opened with like a storybook right or like like here's a good example um like there's a Sweeney Todd movie from like the 40s or 50s that you know, basically, anytime you have anything fantastical or supernatural or weird in a like '40s or '50s movie, you would have this like framing device of the modern day. And there was a Sweeney Todd movie, and this is based off the Petty Dreadful. It's not like the musical wouldn't exist for another like 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the movie ends where we just cut to a modern day barber telling his like person, his like p- customer, <laughs> this story, and then the guy runs out with shaving cream <laughs> all over his face. And I'm like, that's so goofy that you felt like you needed to frame that. Right. And I like that they're basically doing that where we're going through this museum and then the muses are like, no, 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 no. We don't need to do this. Right. But I also love like, you know, I guess this is, we're sort of just beginning by talking about the music and we might as well. Um, mm-hmm. They somehow cast a perfect balance between sort of like traditional music, musical ballads mm-hmm. and this gospel element. They've like kind of compartmentalized them perfectly where like, we understand that like not every character like this gospel is sort of reserved for these muses and they're like the perfect kind of like cherry on top to this us going the more traditional route with these Mm. like broadway ballads yeah it's interesting because like i also think this film is a lot about disney trying new things like pretty clearly pocahontas proved the formula is not working anymore people are not clicking with this like yeah right um this was um so Mencken wrote the music and uh, David Zippel wrote the lyrics, who you might know, he's the guy who wrote Star Spangled Man, the uh, Captain America song. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Yes, and I would argue this is one of the stronger pairings Mencken has had post-Ashman, where it's like, it seems like they were really in sync and they really both understood the assignment. And what I think is really funny about this movie is like, there's not that many songs, but it right. feels like it because the like the like the music is so, like, like clearly defined and like the gospel truth is so much of like you know the muses handle so much of it you're like well they're always popping in like right basically you can cut it but cut this movie up into chapters the muses chime in and like give their opinion on what just happened mm-hmm. there are simultaneously muses in a greek chorus and i would argue that like talking about this being one of the strongest soundtracks in disneydom i would argue it's one of the most consistent 
Mm. Like, there's no weak song. Like, the weakest song is, like, the Phil training montage. And that only pales in comparison because Zero to Hero is the better montage. Right. Yeah, even, because, like, even even to say that um, Phil's One Last Hope is the weakest, like, it's still kind of a great, (laughs) it's great. (laughs) Yeah, it's fun because it's, like, yeah, like, it's, it gets back to that, like, classic Broadway thing of, like, the comedy song with the performer who's not the best singer. Yeah, if anyone hears, like, the sort of legacy casting, it's, you know, it's partly him. But um, it's also, like, I, I love that song because it reminds you that, like, I, like, uh, Phil needs this more than Hercules, actually. I That is something I wanted to talk about with, like, story and characters a lot. Like, yeah. it's really interesting, like, that Phil kind of has more of the arc than Hercules. Yeah. Like, um, one of the reasons why uh, Musker and Clemens locked in on Hercules as, like, oh, this is the guy we want to do story on is because they were both, like, big comic book people, and they're like, Hercules is basically a superhero. Right. And there is so much of, like, the original Christopher Reeve Superman film in this movie in terms of, like, that movie is all about, like, her, you know, Superman coming in from, like, basically off the page from the 40s, coming into, like, a jaded, like, 70s, 80s, like, dystopian, you know, like... Manhattan hellscape exactly uh, metropolis a Gotham and like everyone being like yeah being like this guy is this guy for fucking real yeah like who, exactly. who does this guy think he is running around in tights and saving people right. saving cats from trees and then like everyone slowly appreciating like no this guy's for real and like if he can do it then I can do it right like like that's literally who Meg it Meg is like such a Lois Laney character in that respect in terms of being like oh is Wonder Boy for real and then finally realizing, like, oh, yeah, he's actually, like, really sweet and charming, and he really does want to help people. Yeah. And that changes her. And Phil kind of realizing, like, oh, how he's going about this whole heroing thing is wrong. You know, yeah, that is that is so interesting, because there's something that really stood out to me this last time that I was watching, specifically the One Last Hope song. Um, like, the joke of that is that this, like, doll this damsel doll is like gradually getting more and more mutilated. And I'm like, yeah, I can see why Meg is super salty about participating in this farce where it's not really about the damsel at all. And she would just be a prop. According to Phil's logic of what a hero is, the girl like doesn't, it is truly just a toy in this. Exactly. Like this film has so much in common with princess and the frog where I'm like, the themes and character arcs for all the characters are, like, they're there. They're just not as clear as the traditional Disney animated ones. Like, you know, there's no bit where, you know, Aladdin is like, if Jasmine saw who I really was, she'd laugh at me. Yeah. And Genie literally yelling, tell the truth. Like, it's a <laughs> yeah. little more obfuscated than that. But it's there in the text. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it's it's... Like, the moment where Megara is like, help, there's some children in the ravine, a rock fell on them. And Hercules is like, yes, that's exactly what people tell me to look for. And she's like, oh, wow, you're really, uh, you're really shaken <laughs> up about this, huh? Right, yeah. Like, yeah. Um, you know what random thing I realized for the first time ever watching this recently was there, this movie has so many characters in it. Right. Um, that is what a big is note that? I had. <laughs> I as I'm watching this, I'm like, I had. there's a lot of people in this movie. Right, and not <laughs> both in terms of characters who talk, 
Like, instead of having yeah. one, like, we have, like, our wacky horse side. We don't just have one wacky, like, villager. We have, like, a little Greek chorus of, like, a wackos, Phoe- yeah. Phoebean citizens who are all like, fuck, th- who is this guy? Right. And Like, oh, he's another chariot chaser. It, I, it dawned on me that there were a lot of characters, because I've totally forgot about the sequence of the three witches. The fates. Yes. And I was like, oh my gosh, there's a lot of characters who, like, play a part in the story. <laughs> it is interesting, because, like, I describe it as a vibe movie, but so much happens in this yeah. movie. There's so many ideas, there's so many characters, but that's kind of where a vibe movie can work really well, because it's like... Yeah, we get introduced to a cool character, and we're like, oh, they're kind of cool. Oh, right. oh, you're leaving? Okay. And maybe you'll come back later. But I had a good time while you were here. Yeah, especially, like, the the opening with the baby shower and, like, seeing all these gods and yes. them kind of vibing and doing their cool thing and looking like, oh, Olympus is perfect, whatever. As as a dweeb who is, you know, again, I, I speed run Hades as, like, a hobby. I do that just when I'm bored. Mm-hmm. I'm like, can I get under 10 minutes this time? I love all of the little details with all the Greek gods. Yeah. One, all of their designs are fun and creative. They are. I, I like, like that all I of love... them are, like, monochromatic. They're, they're all just a different yes. color. Yes. Um, we, we can talk more about... The, I do want to talk more about the, uh, like, animation and what went yeah. into that in a minute. But, like, I really love, like, particularly, um, I love uh, Dionysus, who is literally shaped like a drop of grape juice <laughs> and is shaded the color of wine. I'm like, that's so dumb. Mm-hmm. I love it. <laughs> like, and th- again, that gets into like, that's again, this is like a screwball comedy, but with the benefit that you can literally draw every single person. Right. So yes, the lush can look like a drop of wine. Right. <laughs> yes. You can draw Hermes as Paul Schaefer and have, or er, right? and have him being doing all the shtick of like, Hey there. Hey, how hey, are you? I'm here to yeah. deliver this. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then, like, you know, Poseidon can literally just be twirling a martini, and that's all he contributes, but he looks like a fish, and that rules. (laughs) Um, but, yeah, again, it's, it's the benefit of a vibe movie, where it's, like, you just, like, explore the space, meet cool characters, and I do think, like, a lot of people get lost in the ending of this movie, and I would argue, like, the... The thing about a vibe movie is ultimately it comes down to the characters, not the plot. Right. And I would argue that's a big thing with a lot of like screwball comedies where it's like the one I kept comparing this to uh, because a lot of people come a lot of people complain about the tone of this movie. They complain about like, oh, it gets really dark at the end and it has its ups and downs. And I'm like, I always forget that the movie Some Like It Hot literally recreates the Valentine's Day massacre and plays it completely straight. The <laughs> movie about cross-dressing guys hiding with a group of women. Right. Like, literally just has a scene that could have been in, like, a mob movie. Right. Where guys get lined up, back, like, hands up on the wall and get massacred, like, mm-hmm. shot to death. And then we run away from that scene and it's like, oh, we're back to goofballs? Okay. Yeah. And, like, I, I compare it to this because I'm like, you know... At no point do we think Hades' plot's going to work. At no point are we worried about, like, it doesn't matter. It's just, it's a structure that lets us have all these characters. Right, and I love that from the beginning, the fates, like, just tell you the end. They're like, this is not going to work, man. Bye. Exactly. That's the whole point of, like, prophecy and fate. It's like, no, you can't avoid it. That's the point. Yeah. Even even if there wasn't a fate, we know what's going to happen because you're all so predictable. Right. Um, And, yeah, like, the whole... Like, again, the point is we want to see these characters work it out. We want to see these characters succeed in some way. Right. So, like, yeah, I like the emotional tension of the end of the movie being like, okay, 
is Hercules willing to sacrifice himself for Meg? Can he figure this out? Right. And he does. And, like, can him and Meg still make it work? Like, I like that, you know, you know, Phil, Hercules, and Meg all get very nicely understated arcs. Like, right. Hercules is like, oh, yeah, I want to live on Earth. I wanted to be a god, but I'm happy on Earth with this person. Right. And Megara, I think, is understated that she, one, gives, she doesn't give up her cynicism, but she, like, because her whole arc is, or her whole angle is like, oh, she was obsessed with a guy who died. She got him mm. back. She left him. Right. Or he left her. And being like, okay, I can let this person go and I can be okay. Right. And even Phil, like, learning to appreciate, like, oh, yeah, maybe I've been going about this all wrong. Right. Like, I like to think that there's a reason Zeus recommended him. Right. Um, and, yeah, that's why, like, Hercules buys into his shtick completely uncritically. Right. Because he's like, oh, well, Zeus must have known what he's talking about. Yeah. You're um, the coach, so here I am. But, yeah, like, again, it's not about the plot. It's not about, like, like... I, like, I'm a sucker for movies that can juggle a lot of tones. Like, right. It's about these characters in whatever situation they're in the moment, as long as they get to the happy ending. And they do. And, f- like, for me, that's, the, like, why I think the plot of this actually works pretty well. Yeah. Like, it's breezy when it has to be. It's serious when it has to be. But it ends exactly where you need it to be. Exactly. Um, something I've always loved about this movie is that, like, it has a strange self-awareness in terms of its, like, place in the 90s as an idea as a concept it's i've always thought of this movie as like taking the 90s as a concept and putting it through google translate to translate to just like ancient greece how does it like i've I've always been amazed at how seamless that sort of cultural voice is in like in taking this like thing totally steeped in 90s i guess that's because it 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 doesn't attempt to make too many Greek references and makes almost too many 90s references. Right. It really does feel like, oh, it's the 90s with a Greek coat of paint, not a Greek. Like, and again, that was the Aladdin thing. Like, I would argue, like, one of the biggest quiet strengths of, like, Musker and Clemens and Ashman is they all, like, like, they're all very good at, like, they're all good at, like, what's the word? At shorthand. Yeah. They're good at, like, cultural shorthand of, like, seeing something modern and being, or seeing something fantastical or fairy tale and being like, oh, this could be like this. This could be like yeah. that. And quickly figuring out how to stitch together a world. Yeah. One of my um, favorite jokes in this movie that, like, was my mom and I always joke about this is the part where Pain and Panic are, like, getting in, in trouble when Hades realizes Hercules is still alive and they make the joke that's, mm-hmm. like... Hercules is a really common name nowadays. Remember a few years ago when everyone was named Jason and Brittany? And it was like, how do they get away with that? <laughs> I, like, they really like they really slid that one in. Like, that is exactly what you're talking about in terms of shorthand. Right, and it's like, it really is a, it's the damnedest thing because you're like, does that make this dated or does that make it timeless? Right. And for some reason, for some reason, period things like this feel more inadvertently feel more timeless because i'm like oh it's a time capsule right and it's also carried by again it's sentimental and has enough heart like the stuff that doesn't hold up is like the like because we have a lot of stuff from like the early 2000s that i feel like is kind of dated mm-hmm. like rocket power is a good example i love me some rocket power same but i'm like because it's so snarky and carefree i'm like can this exist in any other time period no yeah <laughs> And I think, again, that's one of the strengths of the movie. It understands you have to have kind of just, like, a perfect sentimental good guy at the center of this. Right. Otherwise, none of this will work. The whole thing will collapse. Exactly. That's how you translate it to other eras.
know, I was, while, um, while watching this again, I was remembering, um, as I was kind of looking at the animation, certain sequences that I remember as a kid felt really, like, real and high stakes to me because of just how mm-hmm. well they are animated. Um, specifically the scene in, in the town square when we're introduced to Hercules and he, like, just destroys an entire little villa. Right. And I remember that, anim- like, as a kid, that was really effective at at being animated to look huge and very dangerous. Right. You, Hercules is inadvertently, like, the perfect comedy character. Yeah. Because he's the perfect Looney Tunes energy of, like, oh, I elbow a column, it's going down. Yeah. <laughs> I shake a guy's hand, it's going to be smushed. Yeah. Um, like, every, like, there's monsters everywhere that can turn someone into an accordion. Right. It's such, like... You're like, oh, yeah, this couldn't exist in live action because, like, the whole, like, a key pillar that holds the thing up is, like, make this a cartoon. Lean into the fact that these are cartoons. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, Pocahontas and Hunchback leaned too hard into, like, let's try to make them look realistic. Let's try to, like, yeah. really make it look like a drama. Right. And I think this film really, like, I'm always impressed with, especially 2D animation that effectively um, draws the physics when someone is like a super person and right. this does a, a great job of of making his strength like look feasible somehow right yes um yeah i also just like how different i mean and this isn't like this is such a boring like basic ass take but like i love how different this looks mm. so the like the key production designer for this was a guy named um Gerald Scarf um, he's mostly known for doing the animation for Pink Floyd's The Wall. Oh. And, like, I'm not the biggest fan of that movie, but, like, the animated sequences, I think, really hold up well because they are, like, where the storytelling really kicks into high gear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, like, again, how do you figure out, like, I think one of the best ideas they did is, like, okay, the Disney form is a little stale. Let's try a different style. Mm. And I like that it, he creates a style that kind of looks like Greek art. Like, yeah. I like that they look like they can be... The fact that they can do that shot of... Hercules is smiling and then have a hand slap a vase. I'm like, right. yeah, that's the point. They drew it like the thing. Right, exactly. Um, um, I always loved, um, speaking of the, the scenes where he's like like pre-training, um, when he's kind of clumsily destroying everything, how do they, how do they find the dimensions of like a kind of awkward teenage body? <laughs> they somehow draw right. him to look like a Lego man. Um, in the most <laughs> awkward <laughs> sort his of head is too big, right? His like calves are just like randomly huge, but he somehow is still skinny. But he's got like these kind of lumpy muscles. That is kind of perfect art, right there. Yeah, they kind of. I always forget that he starts this movie again. Talking about like the images of a movie, I always forget that he starts off skinny. Yeah, <laughs> much like I forget. It's the same thing with Simba, where I forget. I'm like, oh yeah, there's a whole part where he's an adult. Right. <laughs> Right. Um, I also think, like, this film just has a different color palette than every other Disney film, and it pays off in dividends. Like, in terms of being, like, every movie needs to have a specific style and color, Mm -hmm. I think this movie aces it. For Um, sure. Even just something as simple as Hercules' armor, that kind of bronzy orange, I'm like, have I ever seen this in an animated movie before? Yeah, there's a lot of glowy orange and purples. It's like, yeah, there's just, there's a lot of glow and gold and yeah and sort of offshoots of that 
So I was actually, I forgot how much CGI was in this movie. Um, yeah, me too. But you know what? This is one of those things that has, is totally enhanced by the streaming experience or, or has been enhanced for the purpose of streaming um, or just for the purpose of a modern audience because I feel like this has totally been retouched. I think all of them Yeah, have. I do. I, they might have done a little bit of work. Um, I can tell, yeah. Yeah, but, like, the Hydra was a CGI, and this is one of those times. And, um, so, uh, do you remember the movie Klaus? The, the recent was, like, one, the a couple Netflix, of... Yeah. yeah, Santa Claus one. Yeah. So, um, that was made by a former Disney animator. And one of the things he was stressing is, like, hey, we did use, for the record, we did use a little bit of CGI in this movie. Mm-hmm. We did it to do the reindeer, we did it for a couple effects. Like, I do appreciate Musgrim Quamens, but you say are some of the best at being like, CGI is not the enemy of hand-drawn. Right. It is a tool in the toolbox that you use to make hand-drawn films better. Right. And I do think this is a good example of that, because you just could not do... Because traditionally, the Hydra has, like, eight heads max. That's, like, usually what they do. <laughs> right. This thing has, like, 30, I think the final count is. Yeah. Um, like, and that looks cool. That makes it unique compared to other mythology things, where you're like, oh, this thing is, like... Um, this thing is a monster monster. Yeah. This is everywhere. This is like, oh, how is he going to get out of this one? Right. And it ends up creating, like, I don't know, it makes what's kind of like the one roller coastery section of this movie, like, really, really tense. Right. Where you're like, oh, I literally don't know how he's going to yeah. get out of this one. Um, and another example is, like, all the cloud stuff on Olympus was digital. Um, mm. Like, they described it as cloud morphing where it's like, Oh, the clouds can make shapes and stuff. I see. I, like it is maybe my favorite depiction of, um, Olympus ever. Really? In terms of like, Oh yeah. Everything's literally a cloud because yeah. they're above everyone. That's fun. That's clever. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's the most common like golden hue that yeah. I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, um, well, we didn't, we weren't speaking of, we, we were talking about this a few minutes ago when we were talking about moon girl, but, um, there is like very subtle but um, effective sound design in this, in that it really it somehow um, executes like silence and quiet really well, mm-hmm. and and the Olympus, all the Olympus scenes have like a sort of like snowy that like snow quiet where oh yeah where it's like super where like there is no reverb on anything. Everything's a little muted. Yeah, exactly. And I love, and well, alternatively, I like that they do a really good job of making the underworld literally antithetical to all of that. Yes. It's constant noise. It's right. constant motion. Mm-hmm. Like, like the fact, oh God, I can't imagine how long it took to make that river of souls where it's like, yeah. oh, the river is people. The river is yeah, made it's out no of water. translucent it's, people. Yeah, <laughs> it's souls. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm also just a sucker for, like, I love the line work. Like, I love how thick all of the lines on everyone is. Again, oh, I just- right. Apparently, this was, like, the largest crew any Disney animated film had had. They had to, like, ship a bunch of it out to Disney Animation France. And it shows. Because this is the most... This feels... Like, I love that, like... This is, we like we were talking about the plot being sort of like a cool laid back vibe. But this movie is kind of epic in scope. Yeah. Like, the amount of monsters, the... Like, the... Like, the scope of everything. Like, when he dives into the Well of Souls, right. and it's just this huge, like, cavernous fall... Um, right. Like every single Pegasus scene where they like take off, mm-hmm. I'm like, wow, this is actually like there's actual speed and like energy. Like it feels like this thing just exploded off the ground. Right. We we have to talk about the design of Hades. 
Oh, yes. Because that is um, a cool device to make someone a lighter. <laughs> yes. Well, again, that is like, oh, taking like 40s and 50s performances right. and being like, oh, what if we could actually make him explode? Right. It It, it is, uh, it is, man, what a distinct, especially because we're in an era where Hades is always so boring. Like he's right. always the villain. He's always like, Brr. right. Like the, I, I, like, I compare this to the Wonder Woman design where he's just a bunch of CGI toots. Right. Um, I'm like, this isn't anything. I'm like, to have him, like, be so, like, hunchy and, like... Yeah. Jittery. Like, yeah, jittery. He's constantly, like, shimmying. Yeah. He's... Um, what's the word? What's the word when you, like... Um, <laughs> when, you're, when you do drugs and then you stop doing drugs? When your body's like struggling, withdrawal. withdrawal. Okay, so there's ours in there. Yeah, he's yeah. he's in a constant state of like some kind of like caffeine withdrawal or something. Yeah, it's well, it's also like it's perfect for like the metaphor of. He looks exhausted. Greek, yeah, Greek hero sports star. He is the skeeziest agent. He just did. He right. hasn't had his daily speed and his caffeine pills. Right. He's like tired. He doesn't have time for this. He's constantly moving to create the illusion that he's got a plan. Right. And it's like what I like. I love how that is such in the antithesis of the gods who are just permanently on vacation. And this guy right. has a full time job and then some. Right. Like I do love even like even like Hermes, whose job is to message like when he flies around, it doesn't seem very like labor or some like it doesn't feel like. Yeah, it doesn't feel labor intensive. He's just kind of gliding around like. It seems like his shoes are just telling him where to go, and he's like, all right, I'll lay back. Like, I'll put my hands behind my head. I'll have a Mai Tai. Yeah, like, even when, like, the Titans invade, Zeus and Hera are just sitting there having, like, a cup of something and, like, laughing. Right. <laughs> and for I love the scene when he, like, rolls up on their baby shower and is salty as hell. And But I right. also love that Zeus is like, oh, good, you're here. Like, there's truly no ill will from his end. Right. Like, he's... I do like that they kind of lean into, like, I don't know. They obviously changed a lot of the Greek mythology. Right. Because, like, it's too much to also ask the audience to accept that our main character is a bastard. Who right. Whose <laughs> stepmother is angry and vindictive. And, right. Like, because in the mythology, Hera sends the snakes to kill him. And also, she... In the mythology, like, Hera is a bitch. Yes. A, as the, <laughs> as as the kids the French say, say. A cringe bitch. Yes. Uh, <laughs> It, it sounds more poetic when you say it in French. Right. Um, but yeah, like she, like in the in mythology, Megra dies because Hera tricks Hercules into having like a god-induced panic. Right. And that's why he has to do the 12 labors to like restore his dignity, honor. Right. But I digress. Yeah, like they're like, okay, we have to sand all of that off. But I still love that, like, I don't know, so much of, like so many versions of the mythology has like Her or Zeus kind of being a bit ditzy or a bit like clueless. Yeah. And I like that they lean into that there, but it's kind of himbo. Like, yeah. He's the perfect himbo. Um, and I love just how much bigger he is. Like I love, like it's the most classic basic, uh, Zeus design, but it's perfect because all the other designs are so like wackadoo and out there. Right. Like, like even like Ares being designed as like this old, like, gr like grumbly old, like he looks like, um, grumpy. Oh, and right, I'm like, yeah. I would have never thought of that. Or like, <laughs> like he's the only one that feels like God in the monotheistic sense. 
yeah, which they is lean what into he is. that idea. Yeah, yeah, because that well, that was like, well, that gets into a whole like anthropology thing right. about how like, you know, Caesar made notes about like how other cult, like places they conquered, they're like, oh, they basically worship the same gods. They just call them different things, and basically yeah. that's like a oh, this is how we'll keep the peasants from revolting. And that's how he got stabbed. <laughs> yes. Um, dun 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 I just saw dun. a tweet today. There. That's the kind of energy this needs. That's that's the Hercules energy. Yeah. The most like the most face plants or like the most head to palm or palm to head yeah. joke, right. but told with such sincerity and timed so perfectly, you just go like <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um yes. Um fun fact, there's actually a temple to Zeus in Libya. Really? Yeah, I learned that a while back, and I didn't know when... I was like, oh, I'll crowbar this in somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> that's relevant. Because that's the whole, like, people get huffy about, like, when they race-bend the Greek gods. And I'm like, they were a Mediterranean empire made up of multiple different right. warring kingdoms who all fought each other on the sea. You don't think they could figure out how to get from one side of the sea to the other? Right, exactly. Like, Africa's right there. Right. Homer's, like, second... Like, Homer's sequel to the Odyssey was about an Ethiopian king getting pulled into all this god nonsense. Like, they knew black people existed. Right, exactly. They had a frame of reference. But I digress. Um, yes, but also, like, I also love the design of the Titans. And, like, as someone who's a nerd about this stuff, I'm kind of like, well, those aren't the Titans. Those are just a bunch of monsters. These are Pokemon, essentially. <laughs> yeah. They basically make the Titans Pokemon, but that's kind of perfect. Because, right. again, it's not about, like, the relationship between Kronos, the god of time, yeah. and his sons, Hades, Zeus, and Poseidon. That's not the plot. Right. If you want to do that, you can do that. But that's not the energy this movie needs. Right. This movie needs Pokemon for Hercules. Exactly. Yeah. We don't think too hard about it. This one's a tornado. Accept it. Yeah. What? What is... What, I love that. It's just... <laughs> He's a tornado. I, I love that one because I think that's... I'm trying to remember. Because you fight them in Kingdom Hearts. I think that's the only one you don't fight. <laughs> I mean, if you fight it, you fight it in the last game. Mm. But you would always go to the Olympian Coliseum to train. And you would always fight Big Rock Guy and Ice Guy. Right. Those were the two they would always do. And they would never do Tornado Guy. Because honestly, how do you defeat a Tornado Guy? Don't think about it too hard. <laughs> we're going to um, skip over that. <laughs> Yeah, well, you use him to suck up the other ones and shoot them into space. That's true. Yeah. Do we want to use this transition of talking about all the characters to get into some of the character talk? Uh, yeah, the yeah, as we just mentioned, how many characters? I guess we should we should talk about the important ones. Right. Right. Um. Well, I was making the note, and it's kind of what I was saying before. Hercules is weirdly similar to to Yana, where he kind of has the right idea from the get-go. Yeah. He just kind of needs a better sense of perspective on everything. Exactly. Which I love, because Megra is all perspective. She's like, I've been around the block, kid. I actually know things. Yeah. And it's like, you know, I was, this time around, as much as I, as I said, I know every word to this movie, but I feel like this time around, I finally listened to the words of his I right. Want Stuff song, as we call it. Um, and I'm like, I it almost gave me sort of like a, a brand new perspective on this character of like, okay, so he, somewhere within him, he feels like a fish out of water. Mm. And it, it is somehow deeper than just like the other kids don't want to invite him to their reindeer games. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it's like, he, yeah, he has that Rudolph energy of, like, all the kids think he's a freak and don't want to play with him. 
And in his head, he's like, oh, well, I have to light the way on Christmas to save everything. It's like, no, you kind of just need to be yourself. Right. Like, is it a, is it a plot hole or that, you know, he sings this song about belonging somewhere else without, this is, he sings a song before his parents reveal that he actually did come from somewhere else. I think it's, I think <laughs> it's one of those things where like deep down you're like, well, there's gotta be a place for someone like me. Yeah. And maybe that's it. The answer is there is, you just have to not change yourself so much. You don't have right. to like, chase approval. You have to find people who like you as who you are. And um, is it just me or like here I am just like spitting off all my random thoughts when I'm thinking about this. I'm like, you know, if I had been a, talking for an hour and 15 minutes, you can just start shooting ideas. You're right. If I had a kid that I knew literally knew came from the gods because he has a medallion that has the symbol of the gods on it. I, I would be on top of that shit the minute he hit puberty. So for them to have been sat on this and let him get to, like, six feet tall <laughs> without mentioning this, like, I feel like we could have solved a lot of issues up front if we were like, look, you can't play football or whatever the Grecian equivalent is because, and uh, we're going to work on this. Do you know what I mean? I would just, I would say that that's the kind of thing that makes logical sense, but not emotional sense. Okay. That is usually how I, that is usually how I explain plot holes because plot holes are trying to apply logic to things that are kind of more dreamlike. You're right. Yeah. And that's not bad. I just think it's different than what they're going yeah. for. No, I get you. I get you. Yeah. We can't tell the story at all if his parents had just been like, yeah, you're stronger than your friends and you need to be a little more careful. He would have never gone on this journey if, if he had right. calmed down earlier. Right. And yeah, it's <clears throat> like, again, this is one of those movies where like, I like talking about it because I feel like people don't appreciate what's on the page. They like, put stuff there that isn't or they look for stuff that isn't there and don't see the stuff that is there because mm. for me i like how bad hercules first fight goes where mm-hmm. like he's trying to be like the chiseled jawed hero he's like yeah and it's what you were talking about with the like with the doll yeah where he's like stand back ma'am you are too close to the situation right and megara is just like oh this guy right one of these guys and then when they go on a date, he's just kind of the awkward dweebus that he actually is. Right. And Megra is like, oh, I actually I like, like this, this guy. Person. Yeah. And like, I appreciate that, again, like the whole subtext is like Phil, Phil's heroes failed for a reason. True. Yeah. And this is kind of what a part of why. Yeah. It seems like all of Phil's failures was that like he failed to read the fine print when <laughs> signing all of them on. <laughs> like surely Achilles same- knew. Well, yeah, that that, that <laughs> one's definitely fine print. But I just mean in the sense of like, okay, it's he's creating this perpetual cycle of failure because each one of his heroes gets a little bit closer to being like mm, a celebrity. Yeah. So Hercules sees this and he's like, oh, I just have to be the best version of this. And it's like, no, you don't have to be anything like this. You have to yeah. be, that's not the point of all of this. Right. Um, I don't know. It's like, oh, that's why you need Clark Kent because right. otherwise Superman's just like a nothing, you know, he's just like, Raw a strong nothing, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was also going to say, like, people compare this to, like, people, like, lean into the idea that he's also supposed to be Rocky, and if anything, I would argue he's more like Creed. 
that's interesting. I think the only reason people compare it to Rocky is because of its like nostalgia essence, and right. for well, cause because of characters of like shirt. Phil, yeah, because there is right. literally a boxing sequence. And right, because Phil is boxing coach, so people use the shorthand of oh, right. so like Rocky, and it's like, well, he's not Rocky. No, and they've never said he was. He's just got an accent. Yeah, again, Adonis <laughs> Creed, like, Adonis Creed makes more sense because it's like, oh, you're the golden child of, like, right. the great hero. Exactly. You, or the great god. You have to figure out what that means in your context. Right. No, you're absolutely right. Um, well, we might as well talk about Megara. Yeah. Uh, great. Awesome. Yeah, no notes. Um, well, I was just going to say, <laughs> this is one of the fun little history tidbits because Susan Egan um, basically auditioned for every single Disney princess of this era. Really? And she ended up being Belle on Broadway. Yes. Um, Susan Egan, who some of our viewers might know more recently as um, Rose Quartz from Steven Universe, was kind of her biggest gig oh, wow. most recently. I didn't know yes, that. Um, yeah, that cast is quietly stacked if you actually skim through who's in wow. it. Wow. I didn't um, know that at all. Yeah, Nicki Minaj is in it for one episode, and then they couldn't afford her for any other episodes, and oh. they lampshade that, but I digress. Um, <laughs> yes, but uh, anyway, so she's like, can I please be Meg? And they're like, no, you're Belle, you're dainty, you're sweet. Yeah. Meg's hard-edged, she's sassy. Yeah. Um, and she finally got them to do a blind audition, and they're like, yep, you got it. Wow. And I'm like, what a world where Belle can also be Megra. Yeah, those are... Those could not be further opposite from one another, actually. I mean, I feel like we've talked about Megara a lot, but the one thing that I picked up on this watching is, like, how unabashedly, like... I hate to use the word horny, but, like... Yeah, this might be a... She might be a... I'm not bad, I'm just drawn that way. Yes. They literally (laughs) have a bit where Hercules has to daintily get her, like, toga strap back up. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, whoa, okay. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, this is something you could get away with in the 90s, but, <laughs> like, I always found um, her interesting for, for, like, how, yeah, how sexually she, which is kind of part of her job, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then she is drawn with these really sharp, hard edges, and sort of, there's, like, sort of minimal that is really feminine about her. And especially when we look back at, like, Grecian art, where, like, women were drawn very voluptuously. Right. Which I think works, because she is, like, kind of, like, done with all of this. Like, she doesn't (laughs) fit into all of this. She's, like, again, she's, like, plucked from a different reality, so she's, like, ugh, this again. Right, exactly. Um, Yeah, kind of... I know why they don't put her with the Disney princesses for a number of reasons. But it does feel like a wasted... And, again, this, we're not spitting... Like, I feel like we've had a lot of, like, hot takes that are really interesting here. This is not one of them. No. Like, Meg's great. Like, Meg is cool. Yeah, like, we're big Meg, Meg fans. Like, Meg is, like, the ideal. Right. Um, yeah, and, like, I won't say I'm in love. It's probably... It's gotta be, like, a top five. Oh, for sure. Karaoke Princess choice. Song. Yeah, it's a great karaoke yeah. choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, Phil... Are we ready I, to talk Phil? Yeah, I I forgot how much he kind of sucks. Yeah, you know... His personality was. You remember the days of, like... And maybe this is still a reality, when, like, they would cast, like, a really famous person and then just draw them exactly? And then yes. <laughs> I actually have some interesting... Hi- I actually have an interesting story about that. Really? So, even the original draft of this movie 
that like the one that was being made while Musgrim and Clemens were working on Aladdin that was set during the Trojan War, there was always the idea that the comedy sidekick would be Danny DeVito. People had Danny fever. It was I'm sure they the did after like Matilda. They come and ask. Yeah, no, it hadn't happened yet. That's the crazy part. It oh. somehow relates to the story. So they ask him, and he goes, eh, hard pass. They audition, like, 12 other people, and multiple people apparently were like, you know who you should really cast? This seems like a Danny DeVito role. You don't so say. finally, <laughs> Musker and Clemens come to Danny, hat in hand, as he's filming Matilda, and he's like, all right, let's do lunch. They have a pot... They, uh, Musker describes it as, like, we had pasta, he got us cigars, we finally talked him into it. <laughs> um, wow. He is a skis bag in this movie. Like, good lord. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and it's interesting how they kind of, like, redeem him at the end. Right. Because, again, like, so much of my argument for this episode is the point of the movie is, like, Hercules kind of needs to stop listening to Phil earlier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when, like, Phil finally it becomes a better person and warns him about Megara and, like, right. pep talks him into, like, fighting without his powers. Right, yeah. Um, that moment at the end where they're like, that's Phil's boy. I'm like... It's a testament to how good this film is. Right. That, like, a character I should not like yeah. gets that moment, and I'm, like, 100% earned. I'm very happy right now. It kind of makes right. me cry, too. But when you... Yeah, oh, no, that is a really touching moment. But when you think about it, it's, like, um, Phil has to be sleazy because he's been given this, like, pure, like, virginal embodiment of, like, a pure person to work with, to mold like clay. It is, like, and again, that's, I think this film is so funny because it gets, like, basically, like, every extreme you can get yeah. of, like, sort of the sports world and the celebrity world and smashes them all together of, like, the, like, jaded starlet, you know, right. the Snow White pure the rookie of all goodness yeah. in the world, uh, the fucking cad. Yes. <laughs> and the sleazy, hunchy businessman. Right. Like, and I guess that's a difference because, like, Hades is sleazy too, but like, he he doesn't have good ambitions. No, he's All his evil. ambitions are bad. Yeah, like Phil comes from an earnest place of just wanting people to like him too. Exactly. Yeah, and creating things um, that benefit the world, but that just have his name on it. <laughs> right. Yeah, but he wasn't born with an Adonis Zeus blessed body. He was born as a goat. Yeah, he was born as a physical embodiment of an M and M. Which is when he is. How the hell have they not gotten Dane? Well, they've had those voices for forever. Let's not rock the boat. Yeah, there's already Maya enough Rudolph weird... thing was a bust. There's already enough weird politics going on with the M&Ms faking their own death, essentially. You know what? Maybe I'll jump into the well souls after this. <laughs> yeah, <Why>? honestly. <laughs> um, and that gets us to Hades. And right. I, I teased you with our Moon Girl episode that there's a lot to this story. It's actually a pretty simple story. Okay. So Danny DeVito was the one who was like, oh, you know who you should get is Hades. Jack Nicholson. And immediately everyone was like, oh, yeah, I mean, that's obvious. Like, right. the like the embodiment of, like, the sort of evil Hollywood star, that's perfect. Right. And, like, they literally started drawing him. And the drawings rule. They're great. Mm-hmm. They look just like him, but in, like, a fun way. So they, well, they have Danny go because they're like, we we know we know better than to approach him. Like, Danny, right. you're friends with him. Can you talk to him? So he comes to the studio with his daughter, who is dressed as Snow White, because apparently she really loved Disney. Right. And Jack is like, hey guys, I really like this role. It sounds really groovy, man. <laughs> I like uh, your so impression of... 
here's the 411. This one's actually one of my better ones. It is sad. It's hilarious that Jack Nicholson's essence is like 60s jazz club guy right. with a turtleneck and like Espe- shades. Because right. <laughs> he never, because like his, arguably his most famous role is like a strung out maniac trying to butcher right. his family with an axe. Exactly. Like he's got like bleeding from the head. Right. And yet his vibe is just like, hey, hey man. Yeah. And now he's just like, yeah, like I said, he's just kind of like the slightly pudgy guy who just hangs out courtside. Courtside, that, yeah. <laughs> Which I'm like, you know what? You've had that career. You've earned this. Do whatever you want. Right. Man. I'd watch the Lakers every day, too, if I had the privilege. Right. Um, but anyway, so he's like, yeah, sounds groovy, man. So uh, here's the deal. Uh, I'll do this for uh, how about $15 million and I would like half of all Hades merchandise. Was um, was anybody making that kind of money in animation that those days? Here's the thing. He was, because that's the exact <laughs> deal he got when uh, Warner Brothers came to him to be the Joker. Okay. And I think this is the ultimate difference between... Because it's like, why are Warner Brothers and other studios failing when Disney succeeds? It's because Warner Brothers caves. They're like, we need Jack in this movie. It's the whole thing. Give him whatever he wants. Mm-hmm. And that basically meant, you know, 12 generations of Nicholsons will never have to worry about money because of that deal. Right. And meanwhile, Fox, George Lucas is like, Hey, uh, so uh, I'll take a little less on the director side, but um, <laughs> can I have all merchandise sales? And they're like, but for this weird, no one's gonna fucking like this thing. Whatever, right. man. I don't Do even know what we're you making. Want. This. Who cares? <laughs> and then kids discover Star Wars, and George Lucas never again. The entire continent will fall into the sea, and Lucas's kids will be on a spaceship, yeah. which is hell. And <laughs> Disney is like, we are not giving up. No, yeah. fuck you. Right. That is. The merchandise is ours. We made it. Yeah. Get your own. That's the only Robin reason Williams, we're making Beatles. this movie. Right. Again, <laughs> like, that's, honestly, that's probably one of the reasons why they caved on Treasure Planet, because they're finally like, oh, whatever, maybe we'll make a ride out of it. I right. Don't know. <laughs> but, yeah, like, Robin Williams, we'll stab you in the back, give you SAG minimum, and then merchandise, <laughs> slap your face on everything. Right. Aladdin. Um, and, yeah, so they're like, uh, how does half a million dollars sound? And it's like, oh, sorry, daddy O's. Can't, yeah. No I think they ended up getting up to a million. Yeah, and they were, like, fucked. Like, they were like, yeah, we went through so many people, and we just couldn't figure it out. We just couldn't crack this, because we were, like, we were so locked in on Nicholson. We didn't know what to do. And finally, James Woods comes in, and for some reason, he's like, yeah, I wasn't feeling like doing the dark evil thing, so I was like, hey, I'm uh, Hades. How are you? Let's make a deal. Right. Let's make a deal. This, of course, would it, launch his Family Guy career. Right? It is kind of wild that, like, you nosedive that hard and still made <laughs> And it's still relevant to a, a small group of people. Um, you know what? It's weird, like, when I think, even though you sent me that cool artwork, like, sorry if, if you in this recording are hearing my cat purr. Or maybe I should say you're welcome, because who doesn't yeah, enjoy that? That's a part of the Patreon content. You get An to hour hear... and 30 into this, you get to hear a meow meow. Yeah, here she is. Um, anyway. <laughs> um... The, the like, idea of Jack Nicholson as um, Hades gives me real, like, heat miser vibes. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? Like, yes, kind it of, looks like that. Right? That's really funny. That's the essence that I got of it. And I'm like, this would be a totally different direction. Right. It is weird <clears throat> to think. And again, that's like the kind of arbitrary nature of making films like this. Sometimes... Jack Nicholson will make unreasonable demands because he's used to that. Right. And you'll have to completely reimagine a character. Right. <laughs> and it's like, it's all, it's impossible to imagine this film without Hades. Cause again, it's like, 
oh, if you don't have the skeevy businessman as your villain, yeah. it just doesn't work. And again, it's such a breath of fresh air compared to, like, different Hades. I'd argue this is a more accurate version of Hades than a lot of fiction, where it's like, right. well, yeah, he has the evil plot, but again, we have that plot because we need a plot. We need a boss fight at the end. That's just how these things work. Just vibe with it. Yeah. But also, like, I like that he's kind of just a middle manager who makes deals. You know what? Yes, we were, like... We keep comparing this to Princess and the Frog, our other favorite movie, but, like, yeah, this is Dr. Fresselier over again, where, like, this is an exhausted salesman. Yes. He <laughs> is in charge of dead people. He's got plans to make. He wants He wants to get up. He wants to get to higher management. Right. But this goddamn, like, pretty boy protagonist keeps getting in the way. Exactly. It's either frogs or Adonises. Right. And... Yeah, I love that because, yeah, and, and it weirdly both ends with them getting dragged to hell. Right, yeah. But yeah, no, you nailed that on the head. They're both just like, <laughs> man, I, I've been at this for 15 years. I'll just right. shake my hands. Exactly. <laughs> and I do appreciate, he keeps all of his deals in the end. Like his whole True. deal of like, I promise Meg won't get hurt. Meg gets hurt, Hercules gets his strength back. Yeah, it works. He lets he lets Hercules leave. He doesn't, he doesn't like... Yeah, I mean, Hercules punches him, but it right. doesn't seem like he's planning on stopping him. He's like, hey, can you talk to your dad, please? Uh, At the end I'm of the day, yeah. realizing the consequences of my actions might uh, come right. back. Hercules is a Nepo baby at the end of the day. Right. Oh, my God, that is... <laughs> well, I I will say, and this is where we can talk about... And I do love... I. The thing I actually really like about the animated show is it leans into how good all the characters are. Mm. Because it does lean into this idea of, like, oh... We have this very specific vision of mythology, like modern mythology. The first episode is literally has a song about going to the mall, <laughs> and it's like the market, and Hercules. They're all doing internships, oh, and God. Hercules, because this free this is it takes place in some weird reality where like Hades knows Hercules didn't die because mm-hmm. he's like messing with his plans. Like they're they're they have like a they have like a contentious relationship. Right. So like that whole thing. Uh, is not, you know, they, they kind of skip over that little bit. Right. Um, and, yeah, so Hercules gets stuck at the gyro place. Well, first it's, or hero place, and he's like, oh, great, that's perfect for me. It's like, no, hero. <laughs> um, he goes by a marble statue of Zeus, and Zeus is like, this simply won't do. So he brings all the gods together, and he's like, let's think of a job for my son. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, and Hades comes up with a plan, have him chariot the sun around, I'll steal the sun, Everyone will get mad at Zeus for losing the sun because it'll be technically his fault. Right. And then I'll do a vote of no confidence. And I'm like, see, this is perfect. This is the exact energy Hercules needs of like weird slapstick comedic scenarios right. built around the joke of like, oh, mythology, but modern. Right. Perfect. <laughs> also, he also has a lady sidekick who's basically Daria. It's Cassa- like his uh, like teen sidekicks are Icarus, uh, the flying boy who flew cl- too close to the sun, right. and Cassandra, who's like the prophet who no one listens to, and then horrible things happen. Exactly. And she's big Daria energy. Exactly. She's like, oh, God, I hate this. Um, there's, oh, what is it? Oh, it's Aphrodite's secret is the joke. Icarus has to work at a lingerie place. Oh my and gosh, I'm like, that's hilarious. And I'm like, yes, this is it. Right. Like, it's a shame that these, like, Disney animated things are so hard, like, TV animated things right. are so hard to look at from this era. Right. Because it's like, you can't. They're this ugly. This clicking. You can't, you have to do a different art style. Yeah. You can't make it look like the movie. Because it's actually very You don't funny. have the budget. Yeah. 
Yeah, also, like, the Jack Nicholson thing, him looking like Jack Nicholson, it really is a testament to, like, how much more effective hand-drawn animation can be than CGI on this front. Right. Because, like, think about Shark Tale. Oh, God, I don't want to. Think about Will Smith Fish. I saw that in theaters. I probably did, too. I used to like that movie. Think about how bad that looks. Oh, yeah, I still kind of, I don't hate it. I'm just kind of like, this Think about, no, no, no. Think about Angelina Jolie Fish. Oh, yeah, that's the worst. That's gross. Yeah. Exactly. But, like, that's the thing. It looks so gross. But then we see this and we're like, oh, this is kind of cool. This is kind of charming. Right. Um, It's the embodiment of that meme of, like, the female office worker. And a guy comes by like, hey, beautiful. Oh, you're so sweet. And then this less conventionally attractive (laughs) guy's like, hey, Judy. Uh, hello, HR. (laughs) Right, exactly. So you're familiar, this show ended up having a theatrical production. Oh, oh, yes, okay. Yeah, so uh, the public theater, which most most casuals would probably know as the place that Hamilton got its start. Right. Like, that was the first trial run of Hamilton. Um, they have, like, a community theater group who put on shows every year, and one year they said, we want to do Disney's Hercules. And I have to imagine they're like, oh, that would be fun, but I can't imagine, you know, Disney would sign off on that. Right. And they were like, ah, no, nah, that's cool. You can You can do it. Which I think is a test, the advantage, like, having this one that's kind of in the middle where it's, like, popular but not as loved and right. not as, like, revered by the Disney brass. Yeah. So it's like, ah, what's the harm this can do? Right. And Alan Menken straight up was like, oh, yeah, I'll write music for it. Uh, I can I can write some new music. Hmm. Um, so Megara gets a new song. Like, the whole fight with the centaur um, has her being like, oh, here we go again. It's another boy. Mm-hmm. Um, Hades gets a villain song, and it is great. Oh, wow. And granted, James Woods cannot sing, so it's good they didn't give him a song. It's called Cold Day, and it's like a smooth Motown sort of, like, it it, it leans into the R&B side, I would say. And I will say, the one narrative thing that it does really well is, um, well, it does two things that I think are really striking. One, when Hercules loses his power, all the people he helped come to help him in the final battle. Mm. Like, it's like the whole town gets in. And I think that's a good choice because I think it leans into, like, oh, people are accepting him. Right. And two, it's almost exclusively a cast of color. Mm. And I think that is huge because that is what helps click for me what this, like, what Hercules as a brand needs to lean into if we're going to see more of it. We need, it is the whiz. It is a sort of fanciful romp through a classical story told through a black lens. Right. And it really is striking how little just, like, casting more diverse can really make that clear. And I do hope that, because currently it's playing at the Paper Mill Theater in um, New Jersey, I do hope they continue to lean into that angle. And one of the reasons why I was so frustrated with um, the Russo brothers getting linked to it is, like, I don't think they're going to get that. Oh, yeah, you might be right. Outside of the muses. Yeah. And then they were, one of them said something like, oh, you know, modern musicals should lean into TikTok. And everyone's like, that's just nothing. You didn't say words Shut up. there. <laughs> you know, the Russo brothers are good at music. So that's the one yes. confidence I would give them for this. But, and honestly, if nothing else, Seeing it on stage is what got me back into Hercules, where I'm like, yeah. did I misunderstand this? Do I need to go back to this? Right. And without it, I probably wouldn't have come back to this film so readily. Yeah, I feel like I, I remember that time when you were telling me about that and kind of sending me a few, like, pictures of it when you had gone to see it. And I feel like that was 
around the time. What year was this? That was like 2019. Yeah, it feels like forever ago. Um, but that we started talking about Hercules again. <laughs> It got roughly $99 million in its original run, which you'll notice is significantly less than what I was describing before. Right. It grossed well under even Pocahontas, to the point Disney's stock dropped like nine points. Really? Wow. And, yeah, a part of it was the critical reception was kind of middling. People are like, well, it's interesting, but it's a little all over the place. It's a little tonally, wah, wah, wah. It's this and that. And I also think the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway from this film is... Disney was just too much now. People were really done with Disney at this Mm. point. Um, I think I described to you, so to promote this film, they did, like, a national tour where they went into, like, different malls and did, like, sort of, like, Olympic games. Like, they would have all these, like, different stages and stuff. They started doing this with Pocahontas, so it was, like, a really late-era phenomenon. One of these days we'll have to talk about the the idea of, like, mall tours (laughs) that, like, pop stars and things like this used to take. I did a, I, I went to one for Yu-Gi-Oh! And I just remember I was getting really tilted because they paired me up playing the game with some, like, five-year-old <laughs> who didn't understand what the game was. Right. Um, but also, this was the best embodiment of this. So, to promote this film, Disney had a parade through Times Square. Basically, they brought the Main Street electric light, uh, electrical parade mm. through Main Street. Apparently, all of these businesses were asked to turn off their lights as to not, like, steal spotlight. Right. Um... The former mayor, uh, Ed Koch, uh, said something along the lines of, I worry Rudy Giuliani has given the keys of the city to Disney. And In hindsight, maybe he did. Well, yes. Yes, it really was the embodiment of, especially because Disney had become the face of, like, cleaning up Times Square. Which, again, I've said before, like, if you want to complain about gentrification, that's right. But old Times Square was not... I I hate that so much of the gentrification conversation centered around Times Square, because I'm like... No, Times Square was, like, actively dangerous. Yeah. Not, like, not like the Fox News, like, scared, quaking in their boots scared. Yeah. Like, actual, like, oh, this is, like, not a safe place right. to be, which is a problem because it's the center of your city. Right. Um, but I digress. But, yeah, it was just this embodiment of, like, the Disney Renaissance had just run out of steam. People were sick of this. And, again, I think a part of that is just, like, you know, how, like, again, you lost, you know, you kind of lost your heart. You lost the guy who got people back into this stuff. And while I think Musker, Clemens, and Mencken all figured out ways to, like, bring that vision still to life, like, they still know how to tell stories through songs. They still have that weird blend of, like, kitschy ref- pop culture references, mm-hmm. and but sentimentality. Um, that middle America energy that they all right. somehow can dig into despite, you know, you know, obviously Howard Ashman and Mencken did not fall under that category whatsoever. It's, and it's a shame that, like, sort of the culture of Disney sort of overshadowed the culture of these guys and the films they still tried to keep making. Because, again, I think, like, in terms of, like, the legacy of Howard Ashman, this film fits comfortably into that. Right. Like, it's so much of what was good about his films, even carrying on without him. Yeah. I think, uh, I'm, I'm just glad that, you know, earlier you mentioned, is this film dated or timeless? And... I feel satisfied in saying that it is timeless. I do worry about it. its live action iteration question mark that I feel like I have heard n- nothing about in a minute. Yes, I I would agree with you that it is timeless and that's why bringing it back just feels like a mistake because like, Yeah, for that reason. It is a 
it is a perfect time capsule of its era. Like, I would argue it's almost like a definitive 90s film in right. the sense of, like, every generation probably gets, like, 10 to 20 films that it's, like, this film will make sense in any generation mm-hmm. and will also tell you everything you need to know about that time. Right. I think meddling with that is, like, volatile. It's a little dangerous. Yeah, I would agree. It cheap. It threatens to cheapen it. Yeah, that's the word for it. Um, to kind of, like, party city-fy it. Yes. Like, I mean, we wouldn't have done this if we didn't think this was worth coming back to, but I do think one of the reasons why I like doing these long-form things is because I want to give films another chance. Like, again, mm-hmm. I don't like groupthink when it comes to critical reception, and one of my best examples of that is, like, I hate when people are like, oh, this era of Disney's not good. Right. I'm like... Those people are all unintelligent. Yeah. And, like, I I hate using that word, but I'm like, like, sit down, watch this, and, like, try to see parts that you weren't seeing before. They won't do that. I know. Dismiss these people. (laughs) But I'll just say, like, in Beauty and the Beast, there's something there that wasn't there before. And if you just look, maybe you'd be able to find it. You know, in my adulthood, I get more and more cynical because I'm like... Most people watch movies with, like, half of their brain. Well, that's what Meg thought, but every now and then you find that one guy who uses his full brain. Well, maybe, but maybe I'm just, maybe I'm exhibiting my big Daria energy right now. Oh, we're just sinking into the 90s. (laughs) Uh, Tech decks. Yeah, Bill Clinton. No. Why not? That was 90s. <laughs> yeah, but, like, I don't know. I don't like neoliberalism. Okay. Get all the 90s politicians okay. out of here. I don't like any of them. Sorry, sorry. They've ruined everything. Um, baby Paddle Pop? Yeah. Okay. There we there go. We Good go. nostalgia. <laughs> the parts that let me be like a kid and forget that the world's bad. Yeah. Purple ketchup. How about that? Oh, well, I can say, well, real quick, I will say, did you know there was a canceled sequel to this? No. <laughs> Okay, so it's a little hazy whether or not it was going to be straight to DVD or not. But, so basically, they were going to go back and do... It's so funny that two of the big films of Musker and Clevins, like Hercules and uh, Treasure Planet, arguably two of the most personable in terms of, like, we're doing stuff we like movies. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, again, that's one of my biggest takeaways from this in terms of, like, auteur theory. This is a Musker and Clevins joint. Right. Like... It's taking what Howard Ashman taught them and applying it to stuff they like. Because at the end of the day, Simon, what their weird strength is, they are kind of boomers. Like, yeah. They like they like campy forties comedies. They like like they they, they they like curvy raunchy women right. who are like cool. They you know they love slapstick. They love pop culture references. They love freaking comic books. Right. Like, I it is it is the testament to Disney that you look at their animators and they all have this very big boomer Hawaiian shirt energy. Exactly. And yet they are some of the most soulful, personable, like right. sincere people you'll ever meet. And that's I think compared to like Ghibli, which is also sincere, that's like the magic of Disney where it's like it really is like the most family dad energy. And yet it's also like the most emotionally soulful, like it balances right. emotional soulfulness that like American masculinity normally isn't allowed to have exactly with, like that big dad energy. Yeah, it's <laughs> I don't know why like I just get the imagery of when you say big dad energy of like yes Hawaiian shirt those like 
goofy hats that they used to sell in the parks and like New Balance that's what they sneakers. All fucking wear. And New Balance sneakers, yeah. And like with yeah, that's that's what it is. Cargo shorts. But yeah, it, 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 like, <laughs> and again, it's so weird that you look at these guys and you're like, at what point in their life do they look and I, I I also think it is like an embodiment of like all of these guys, like Musker Clemens, like this whole generation of animators, like you know, this was before animation was like you know, like, you go to a school, college for animation. Now. Right. Like, there's hundreds of schools you can go to for animation, and they look like us. They look like arts Exactly. Kids. Whereas, like, Messer and Clemens were, like, working as, like, in newspaper. Right. Like, working as cartoonists, and then they're like, all right, I guess I'm going into animation. Yeah. And I do think that's, like, again, one of the weird, like, sort of historical bridges. Anywho, um, <laughs> the sequel to Hercules was going to be that Trojan War idea. Oh, but gosh. yeah, they wanted to do sequels to this and they wanted to do sequels to Treasure Planet and both got canned sequels. Um, they were going to go back. Um, he's living in Athens with Megara and his daughter. Uh, Helen is captured by the by Paris of Troy. So he joins the Greek army to rescue her. Um, there's not much else known about it other than it got canned when John Lasseter took over and was like, no more sequels. We're canning we're the sequels. Doing that, yeah. Um, it is also like a funny angle of like, so, like, in that letter to Howard Ashman, they mention he was going to work on Mary Poppins 2. Because um, when Eisner came in, one of the big ideas was sequels. That's how we'll make more money. And then him and Katzenberg sat down, and they're like, oh, there's just nothing here for 80% of these. Right. Like, you can't do anything else. So they're like, uh, rescuers, we can do another one of those. And Mary Poppins, of course, there's like 100 of those books. And then they just didn't do it until right. now. Um... um. This is a this is a great. I, I can't say I haven't had a lot of fun. I I super have. Um, this is a movie I'll probably always have a lot of affection about. This is one I'm happy to breathlessly defend. To even though doesn't need that much defending at the end of the day. Is it? You know I feel like the, um, this is the worst era in Disney Bros are few and far between. Um, but it, it's like see here's you know if there's if I had any wish for this film. It's there. There are people who think that this was not great work from Disney, um, and then there's people like us. But I feel like most of the people, <laughs> I feel like the majority of Disney fans fall somewhere directly in the middle, where they feel sort of unremarkable about this film, which I think is the most injustice against it. That people, that most of the people have no strong feelings about it. I feel like it deserves strong feelings. <laughs> Right? I think that's kind of the perfect way of putting it. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, it's, like, it's gotten culturally... Like, our generation really does defend this movie, but even a lot of us defend it with asterisks. And I would argue, I don't even know if it needs an asterisk. Right. Just, like, be honest about what it is. It's a big, messy, confident film that has so many great ideas and is confident in its... does its own thing. Right. And, yeah, I also think, like the generations before us have kind of memory hold it. And I'm like, mm. this film is too interesting and too personal and too unique to get memory hold like that. Yeah. Like if the, the lesson here is that like everything you've seen as a child deserves another look, you are different. <laughs> right. I think that honestly, that's one of the big thesis statements of Disney desk. Honestly. Yeah. No, that that. Like why else would we be going back to cartoons? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, everything deserves a critical adult viewpoint again. 
Yeah, and we sincerely hope you sit down, grab yourself some ambrosia or some grapes or uh, <laughs> a pita with some pocket in it, as they say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And give this movie another try. Yeah, please do. And until we make it up to Olympus, having earned our godly status as the gods of slightly too long podcasts, <laughs> I'm Carter. And I'm Sydney. Have a magical day. And thanks for listening.